You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burnt, but have no love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Glory be to God. Okay, so... If you were a superhero, what would your superpower be? Perhaps you'd have superhuman strengths. Perhaps you could run faster than a speeding bullet. Maybe you could have x-ray vision or walk through walls. What would it be? There's some amazing superpowers out there. But there's also some pretty weird ones and pretty lame ones. If you kind of look at the back catalogue of the B-grade and C-grade superheroes, uh, take Matter Eater Lad. Uh, he hails from the planet Bismol, a place where people had evolved to be able to eat anything. Or consider Colour Kid. After being struck by a beam of light from another dimension, he gained the ability to change the colour of any object. A couple of superheroes are pretty special with acid. They can make it on demand. There's Anarchist who can produce it through his sweat and Zeitgeist who does it through his vomit. This is the kinds of superpowers that are out there. There's also Mr Midnight who has one ability, the ability to stop clocks. Not, not stop time, don't, don't get that idea. It's actually just to stop clocks. Basically, this guy comes out at every time that there's daylight savings and that's his only superpower. Now, why am I saying all of this? Why am I bringing this up? Well, it's because spiritual gifts 
can sometimes be viewed a little bit like superpowers. We saw last week that God's people are given spiritual abilities, direct gifts from the Holy Spirit, empowering us for ministry and to serve in his church and with his people. There's a really big variety of these gifts, speaking in tongues, there's prophecy, there's healing gifts, there's other things like hospitality or the gift of faith. And these are how God equips his people for the work that he's called us to do. They might not be quite superpowers, but they are supernatural. They're special things given to us by God that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. We're only able to do these things because God chooses to enable us to do them. And yet because there's such a wide variety of these gifts, it becomes pretty easy for Christians to kind of rank them, to work out which are the best gifts What are the equivalents of superhuman strength, for instance? And what are the more lame gifts? How to stop clocks in a spiritual sense? And so we can often start to rank people. This Christian has this gift, so they're more impressive than that Christian because they've got a lesser gift. Certainly that's what was happening in Corinth. Uh, We've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians and we're in the middle of a big section that talks all about spiritual gifts. And the Apostle Paul is doing this because he's trying to correct the way this church was thinking about these things. You might remember what we looked at last week. In chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's actually saying three really important things here, I think, that every one of God's people has a gift from God. Each one of these gifts is important, no matter what it is, and each of these gifts has been given to the individual so that they can give it to the church. It can be for the common good. It can serve other people. And so they're all needed. No matter what that gift is, it's needed by the church. But that's that's clearly not how the Corinthians were approaching these things. They were using their gifts for their own good. They were vain. They wanted the glory that they could get. They wanted to feel superior to other people in the church. They were dismissive of other people and the gifts that they brought to the table. They, they didn't view anything as important unless it was spectacular. And this had created the most toxic of atmospheres. Rather than working together for the common good... They were dismissing and despising each other and having this competition to see who could be the greatest, who could be the most impressive. And so Paul is urging them in this section to come together and to see how these gifts are given to them by God. And so they shouldn't be proud about them, but they should humbly offer them to the church. He wants them to use their gifts in the right way for God's glory and for the good of each other. And today's passage, chapter 13, is really a continuation of this. And it begins with what Paul sees as the key ingredient. The one thing that you need to make any of these spiritual gifts work, to make them effective. Really what Paul's doing here is he's pulling apart everything else and he's going right to the core. What is the thing behind all of these gifts that's most important? And it's simple. It's love. Love is the key thing. When you strip away everything else, what you most need, the only thing that is truly of the greatest importance is love. Verse three, if I, uh, verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, 
but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's all about love. The Corinthians were obsessed about spiritual gifts. But Paul is saying here that without love, none of these things matter. They're wasted. They're irrelevant. I mean, think about what he's saying, because it's quite a remarkable thing. He's saying that you can speak in the tongues of men and angels. You can have the supernatural languages that we heard about last week. But it's all meaningless if you lack love. It's just like someone banging on a pan. You can have prophetic powers, speak the very words of God, but those words are empty if your actions don't back them up. You can understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, have deep insights into God's will and his way, but if you lack love, it suggests that you don't actually know God at all. You don't know the first thing about God. You can have all faith, you know, the kind of faith that would pick up a mountain and and put it in the sea, as Jesus said, but it's just a fancy show if there's no love behind it. And you could give away everything. You could give away your money. You could give away your time, even your body and your very life. Deliver it up to be burnt. But if, you, but if you do it without love in your heart, it means nothing. In fact, you are nothing. Without love, I am nothing and I gain nothing. It's all worthless. It's all wasted. Love is the thing. It's the most important thing, the essential thing, the thing that without this, everything else is worthless and wasted. In fact, later on in this chapter, he'll say that love is the only thing that really lasts. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. All of these spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were so excited about, they'll pass away. But love will not. Now, it's not, it's not the Paul saying that tongues or prophecy or knowledge is irrelevant or unimportant or wrong. He's just saying that love is more important. Love makes sense of everything. Love gives value to everything. Love is like the, the salt that brings flavour to everything else. And without it, everything is bland and meaningless, tasteless. It's nothing. Okay. But what is love exactly? I mean, that's a, that's a valid question, right? Of course, that's the question that the band Hadaway asked back in the 1992 in their hit single, What is Love? I'm sure you're all singing it in your head right now. Just thank me tomorrow morning when it's still there. I mean, their lyrics gave some kind of answer. What is love? Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Perhaps not the most profound uh, answer. The song goes on, repeating that same line multiple times before it breaks it up with a little bridge. Whoa, 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 oh, oh. Whoa, 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 (laughs) oh, oh. (laughs) So while they asked an important question, they couldn't provide a very good answer. Others have tried, of course, as writers and poets and artists and scientists and singers. It feels like love is something that is endlessly fascinating. You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs, but I look around me and I see that it isn't so. That's because love, the giving and the receiving of love, is fundamental to humanity, to who we are. 
The relational psychotherapist James Olthius writes, loving is not merely one thing among others that we're called to do. Love is not an additive. Loving is of the essence of being human, the connective tissue of reality, the oxygen of life. And yet for all our singing and our writing and our philosophizing, I'm not sure that we've actually gotten that far. I'm not sure how developed our answers are. For a start, we limit love far too often to romance, when, of course, we need so much more than that. Even within a marriage, you need more than that. And too often, love is boiled down to feelings, feelings that can change and and move around. And see, we also sense that we need to be better at love, that we often get it wrong. There's a bumper sticker on a car just near my house and I walk past it often and I see it. And it it says, if we could live happy and healthy lives without harming others, why wouldn't we? It's a great question, right? They're really asking, why don't we just love each other? I mean, that's the golden rule, isn't it? To to love your neighbour as yourself, to treat others the way you'd want them to treat you. We all know that we're supposed to love, to look after each other. So why can't we? Why do we get it wrong so often? If, if all we need is love, why can't we love better? Not as much as we could, not as much as we should. Today's passage, I think, will hopefully help us. It will help us understand what love is and how we can find it, how we can give it, how we can receive it, how we can grow to be more loving. Because that's what Paul's going to answer here. The first thing is, what is love? Well, here's his answer in verse 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What is love? Well, here is Paul's answer. It's interesting, you know, D.A. Carson points out that this is not actually a, a definition of love so much as it is a description of love. There's actually 15 characteristics that Paul outlines here of, of what love is and what love is not, what it does and what it does not do. It's very thorough. And, and something that jumps out to me is that there's no feeling words here. They're very practical, pragmatic, down to earth. They're real world terms. And really, he wants us to understand that love is something that we do. There's so much here that, that I just really want to unpack. I'm going to camp out in this, these few verses for a while because I want to actually unpack each one of these terms because they really reveal so much to us about what love is. First of all, we see that love is patient and kind. To be described as a kind person is surely one of the nicest things that, you could be, uh, said, that could be said about you. Anthony Thistleton says that, Kindness is pure and unselfish concern for the well-being of the other. Uh, It's it's a beautiful description. There's something very sweet about that, really, isn't it? And yet that sweetness should never be confused with weakness. And perhaps that's why it's coupled with patience. William Barclay says that patience is the word used of the man who is wronged and and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself and yet will not do it. That's the glory of patience. You could do something, but you don't. You could lash out, but you don't. You could choose, 
to hurt someone, but instead you hold your frustrations. You absorb them. You take them in on yourself. So love is patient and kind. We have these positive descriptions of love. The next bunch of terms, though, are kind of negatives. He's trying to say what love is not like, what love does not do. So first of all, we see that love does not envy or boast. I reckon there's few things more awkward than a boastful person. You know, someone who's always telling you just how great they are. The whole look at me personality, always seeking attention. And there's actually something a little bit ironic about it. Someone who is like this, is wanting all of this attention, does get that attention, but it's, it's a negative attention. We all kind of find them annoying and uncomfortable, a little bit embarrassing. We might despise them. There's actually something a bit cringeworthy about someone who's boastful. But if that's the case, if we almost kind of look down on someone who's boastful, there's actually something darker and more sinister about envy. If boastfulness is about building yourself up, then envy is actually about dragging other people down. You see something that someone else has and you want it for yourself. You can't be satisfied if someone else is better off than you are. Worse still, you actually want it from them. You want to have it and for them not to have it. William Barclay again writes, there's two kinds of envy. The one covets the possessions of other people, but the other is worse. It grudges the very fact that others should have what it has not. It does not so much want things for itself as that others had not got them. (laughs) How horrible is that? You want the good thing that someone else has, but you also don't want them to have that good thing themselves. That's the darkness of envy. In Corinth, that meant that people wanted gifts that someone else had, but they also didn't want that person to have those gifts. In our context, it might be something similar or it might be a little bit different. It's not just that you wish that you had someone else's good looks or their knowledge or their relationships. It's that you wish they didn't have them. That's what envy's like. And there's something profoundly self-absorbed about that. And you see that, self, that same selfishness in the phrases that follow. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I wonder if you've ever met someone who always has it their own way. They're just unbending. Whatever they want, they get. There's no willingness to compromise. There's no sense that other people's needs or wants are valid. Now, if you don't know someone like that, that might actually be a problem because it might be that you're like that, that you always get your way. So when is the last time that you conceded, that you compromised, that uh, you did something that someone else wanted? You had a desire, but you uh, gave up, you surrendered that desire so that they could have it. When's the last time you served someone else? Now, hopefully you've done that recently, you've served someone recently, But I wonder what your attitude was. I wonder, did you do it happily or did you do it irritably? Uh, Are you glad to serve other people or does it always feel like a chore? You're always resenting it. Do you find yourself annoyed all the time? Your kids ask you to do something simple. Oh, sure, fine, I'll do it. Your spouse asks you to take the rubbish out. Great, yep, I'll do it, whatever. Everything feels like an imposition. Like it's unfair, as if the world is against you. Like, why do I have to do this? Do you know, 
that word translated irritation comes from a Greek word that means something like making sharp or making acid. It gives you the impression of someone looking for offence, someone who's always looking for a reason to be angry, who's kind of throwing out eggshells for people to walk on. And if we nurse that feeling over a period of time, it can grow and morph and deteriorate into something like resentment. You can, you can almost taste the poison in that word. It's that fixed negative view on things. A, a, million, a million irritations turned out, uh, developed into this fixed resentment against people and against the world itself. And it's really easy for this to happen. Uh, we're wounded by something. We feel angry. We feel hurt. And now at first that Anger might be a kind of righteous anger. It's appropriate for us to feel angry about this. But then it hardens into something else. A righteous anger becomes unrighteous anger. It becomes resentment. You see, we, we actually kind of like being angry. Anger means that we can feel superior to someone else, that we're better than them, that we're um, more impressive. And so we start to get a taste for it. We like the idea that we're better than someone else. And so we nurse our wounds until they start to be poisoned, until we become resentful. And, you know, if we're like that, then we almost are pleased when people disappoint us and that's why I think we have this next line, verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Uh, that phrase is an interesting one. I, I don't think this line means that we rejoice in doing bad things or seeing bad things. It's more about the fact that we might rejoice in wrongdoing being exposed. That's what we like to see. It's that judgmental attitude that, uh, that likes to see people shamed, that just kind of jumps on the smallest sign of fallibility. Now, maybe that sounds outrageous, but let's be real. That's why people watch reality TV. We want a villain to hate, to judge. We want a fool to laugh at. That's why people read gossip pages in the magazines. We want to see that the beautiful people still have trouble staying thin or that their relationships aren't as easy as we imagine they might be. Or think about cancel culture. Someone makes a, a misstep on Twitter, says something inappropriate, and everyone just piles on and destroys them. At first, it looks like they're, they're upholding morals. They're saying, oh, I'm shocked and disgraced. I'm scandalised by this. But their attitude is betrayed by how vicious they become. There's something gleeful in this, something violent. It's rejoicing in wrongdoing, in the opportunity to destroy someone for what they've done. And you know what? We can't actually complain. It's out there in the world, but that same instinct is often here in the church as well. How do you respond when you hear of someone falling into sin? a leader stumbling, or maybe you catch someone in deceit, or you, you see how angry they get with their kids, or you learn about some hidden addiction that they're struggling with. When someone else falls into sin, we might say that we're shocked and we're horrified and we're scandalised, but a part of us might also be a little bit satisfied too. We might just relish it, because now we feel better than them. We feel superior, we feel holier, we feel entitled to look down on them. You see, deep down, we're 
fundamentally competitive. We've got this whole game, our lives are built on this pecking order and we're constantly trying to rise up the ladder. When someone else is doing well, they're higher than us and so we want to see them brought down. But love is not like that. Anthony Thistleton writes, love never relishes the opportunity to say, I told you so. No, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love wants good things for ourselves and for others. Love doesn't compete. And so when good things happen around us or other people are doing well, we're celebrating with that. We want to enjoy what they're doing. We're not afraid to compliment them or honour them because we see that God is doing something good. 1 Corinthians 12, if if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. That's the loving attitude we're supposed to have. Struggling with someone and hearing and feeling their pain when they're in a difficult situation and then celebrating with them when things are going well. That's what love does. Well, Paul's description of love began with something positive and now in verse 7 he ends it with something very positive too. It kind of reaches this crescendo, verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. There's something just wonderfully realistic in these words. You see, it assumes, it it recognises that love is difficult, that love will have things to bear, offences to carry, frustrations that could wear us down. But love will endure through thick and thin, through disappointment and setbacks. Love holds on. So often in our world, we think of love as this strong feeling. It's about passion and fire, but fire can burn out. No, no, true love is strong, not in its intensity so much as its durability. It keeps going. It's determined. It's resolute. It's consistent. It sticks it out. And yet, even with all of this determination, love remains soft and optimistic. You see, words like bear and endure are tough words, muscular words. It kind of would almost squeeze the life out of something, but that's not what happens. Love remains soft and gentle and happy. It believes all things and it hopes all things. Though rejected and spurned, love keeps giving. Though hurt, love keeps hoping. Love believes. It it fills the gaps with trust and not suspicion. It imagines the best and not the worst. And love hopes. It forgives offence again and again, 70 times 7, as Jesus said. It assumes that every conflict can be resolved. It assumes that every wound will be healed and it demands that every sin is forgiven. That's what love's like. So how do you measure up? Are you loving? I mean, I'm sure as we were going through that list, you were doing a mental checklist of how you go. Would you say that you're loving? Would your friends or your family members say that you're loving? I don't know about you, but as I go through that list, I'm convicted. I realise that I don't measure up very well. I know I'm impatient. I'm irritable. 
I'm resentful when things don't go my way. I hear myself boast constantly. It's subtle, but it's there. I'm always trying to make myself look good. And even when I do love, I'm not sure how durable it is. Will I always hope? Will I always believe? Will I bear all things? Will I stay optimistic, hoping all things? I'm, I'm not great. I'm not loving. So how do I change? I mean, I'd like to change. And I'm sure you'd like to change. I'm sure you'd like to love better as well. So how do I do it? How do I become a more loving person? Well, my first instinct is to just try harder. That's what I've got to do. So I start making a plan. I'm going to be more patient. When someone annoys me, I'm just going to hold back. I'm going to hold my tongue and any angry thoughts that are coming in, I'm just going to knock them on the head. But the problem is people keep giving me opportunities to be patient. They keep doing really annoying things that demand patience. And I keep stuffing up. Okay, well, I'll just try to be more positive. I have this horrible habit of seeing all the bad things in people. So, so now I'm just going to work really hard on seeing all the good things. I'll, I'll be kinder. I'll be more generous to people. Uh, there's a lady behind us at our house who uh, recently was widowed. Uh, her husband died and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get something. During the first lockdown, I thought I'll, I'll bring around a care pack for her to make her feel better. But I didn't manage it. Never got around there. Now lockdown 2.0. Am I going to manage it now? Am I going to manage to love? You see, no matter how hard I try, I don't actually seem to get that much better. Maybe I improve a little bit for a little while, but not as much as I want to, not as much as I need to. I'm still not loving. Now, why? Why is this? Why can't I do this better? Why can't I just improve? Well, the Bible says it's actually because I don't love God the way I need to. The Bible says that we don't love people because we don't love him. You know, we, we know that the golden rule is to love your neighbour as yourself, but there's actually another rule before that. Matthew 22, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. So yes, we should love each other. We should love our neighbour. But before that, even more important than that, is that we love God. So I and you and we don't love people properly because we don't love God properly. And this is the great tragedy of sin. You see, God is love. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. That's how he is. That's how he exists. He is always loved. And because God is love, he wanted to share this love. And so he made us, he created us so that his love could spill over into this world, into our lives. So he wanted us to experience and to express love. That's how he made us. That's what he made us for. That's what we were made to do. But sin has disrupted that. You see, humans have rejected God's love and spurned it. We had God's love, 
but it was doubted and it was questioned and every person has done the same thing. Every person doubts God's love and then turns away from it. But the problem is, as soon as we're disconnected from the God who is love, who defines love, we've lost connection with the source of all love. And then everything gets distorted and put out of whack. We love too little or we love too much. We love ourselves and not others. And that's what we see in the Bible. So in Genesis 2, when Adam first meets Eve, their first thought is to love and to serve each other. Then in Genesis 3, after sin has corrupted them, straight away they're thinking about protecting themselves from each other. They're thinking about themselves and not the other person. And this happens just a couple of chapters later. There's the children. One of their sons kills their their brother. It doesn't take long for love to be lost and for everything to be broken. And it's all because we don't love God. We don't love people because we don't love God properly. And until we fix our relationship with him, until we get reconnected to the source of love, we'll always get it wrong. We won't be any better. But that leaves me with a burning question. You see, I might want to now reconnect to God, to the God who is love. But why would he want to reconnect with me? Why would he love me? I've just said that I've rejected and spurned his love. Why would he give me another chance? And what do I do if he doesn't? Why would God love me? It's a haunting question. But there's something so wonderful in this passage. See, I don't know if you've noticed this, but all of the characteristics that Paul talks about in love are choices. You choose to be patient. You choose to be kind. You choose not to take offence. You you choose to concede, to let someone else have their way. You resolve to hope, to believe, to bear, to endure. And so at the very core of love is the choice to love. And that gives us hope. You see, if love is a choice, then anyone can be loved. It doesn't depend on how lovable you are. It depends on the person who is choosing to love you and whether they are willing to do that. And here's the wonderful truth, folks. God chooses to love. Not because I or you, not because we are lovable, but because he has desired and wants to love. He chooses to love us, not because we deserve it, but because he wants to do it. That is the glory of the gospel. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, we have sinned. We've turned away from God. We've spurned his love. But God chooses to love us anyway. Not because we deserve it. We are sinners. But he deals with that sin. He comes to have it forgiven. God is loving. And we see this in the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when I look at Paul's description of 
love. I, I see a description of Jesus himself. Jesus was patient and kind. He was patient with his disciples who were constantly letting him down. He was kind to the people that everyone else ignored, the, the sick, the elderly, the diseased. He didn't insist on his way. Now, the God who could have had everything gave that all up for us. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he could have had everything his own way. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't insist on his own way. He did the Father's will. Not my will be done, but yours, he said. And he went to the cross to take our sins and to deal with them. To take the consequences that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve. He took that for us. And on the cross, in love, we see how Jesus bears all things believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. He bore our shame and our disgrace. He bore our sin. He endured God's judgment, the judgment that we deserved because he believed all things. He hoped all things. He hoped that in dying he would rise again. He believed that in doing God's work, he would do all that was needed to bring us back to him. And now he offers us his love, the achievement of his work, salvation and a new life. He offers a loving, godly rule working with us and in us, a love given not because we are lovely, but because he has chosen to love us and a love that is eternal, a love that will never end. And you see, underneath everything else, that's what we long for. We long to be loved, to be safe, to be secure. I actually think that's why we're unloving so often. We're selfish because we think we have to be. We think that no one else will look after us and so we just choose ourselves. We look out for number one because we don't think there's any other option. There's no one else looking out for us. And there's a fearfulness, a desperation, a, a sadness about us. So we have all of these failures that we know and we, we actually long to be accepted. We, we boast about all of our good bits, but we're painfully aware of all our bad bits. And we wish that someone would accept us even with all of those things, that someone would love us despite all that is wrong with us. We want to be loved through everything, not just now, not just for a moment, but always and forever. We sing about songs of never-ending love because that's what we hunger for. And in God, we can find it. God is love. And when he chooses to love he chooses to love us. Not your best picture of you, not who you want to be. He chooses to love you as you already are, with all of your failings, with all of your sin, with all your rebellion, with all of your brokenness. God loves that. 
And because he loves you, he'll help you and change you and work within you. He won't just kind of ignore that sin. He'll start to work within you so that it's, you're changed. Your addictions and your brokenness are healed. Your wounds are healed. God loves you because he's chosen to love you. And here's the other thing. When he chooses to love you, he never changes his mind. There's nothing that you can do that can take away his love. Romans 8, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has offered you this love. He offers you this love today. Maybe you really uh, need to hear this. Maybe you've been struggling for ages to, to try and prove yourself to God, to get yourself ready for him, to make yourself lovable. You're never going to make it. You're never going to do enough. But the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus has done more than enough, that God has chosen to love his people and send Jesus to make up for everything that we've done and everything we've failed to do. That's the offer that God now gives to you. He says, I'm here, I'm willing to love you. So how will you respond? How will you respond to the love of God in Christ? See, the question is not, am I worthy of love? It's, am I willing to be loved by God? Am I willing to be humble enough to accept his grace and to stop trying to work for it? Am I willing to let him love me? And if you do this, if you receive that love, here's the glorious news, that God will make you loving. God will set you free. God will change you. And he'll start working through those characteristics of love. He'll start making you like that making you like him because he frees you up. You see, so many of the, the things that we get wrong about love, I think are because we're insecure. We're grasping and trying to find our identity in what other people think of us. But God heals that. Take envying. We envy because uh, we don't feel like we have enough. But if we have Christ, we have everything, everything that we need more than we can imagine. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's no need to be envious if you've got everything that you need. We'll take boasting. We boast because we want others to affirm us. We think we're pretty hot stuff, and so if no one else is saying this, then we feel like we'd better do it ourselves. But if you need that kind of attention, that kind of praise, it actually suggests that you're insecure, that you're not as sure of your position as you make out, that you need to be built up. But if you know that you're loved by God, the creator of the whole universe, then you're set free from that. 
You don't need to boast because you know who you are. You're loved and owned and accepted by the King of Kings. So you don't need the affirmation of everyone else. You don't need to pretend that you're stronger because God knows your weaknesses and loves you anyway. You see the freedom this actually gave Paul. I just love the Corinthians, like so many other churches in this time, uh, often derided him because he didn't seem powerful enough. And so they despised his suffering and they preferred the super apostles who looked more impressive. Now, Paul could have played that game. He could have tried to show off his strength, but actually what he instead chooses to do is to show off about his weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he says, when I'm weak, then I am strong. He'd been so freed from the insecurities that he was willing to boast of his weakness. Because in his weakness, he could see God. He could point to God. And that's what we get to do. That's ultimately what love is. It's about pointing to God. 1 John 4 verse 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, when we find our identity in the love of God, we become loving and then we show the world what God is like. We perfect God's love. It, it starts with him. It comes to us. It works in us. And then it flows out to each other. And then the world sees this and they honour God. So it returns to God. The love that started with God comes back to him. We get to point to the God who is love. We become like him and show people who he is. I love God's command to, to love, to love him and to love others. It's a simple commandment. But passages like 1 Corinthians 13 fill it out. These are an invitation for us to grab this, to go for it, to become more loving, to be more patient and kind, to not envy and boast, to not be arrogant or rude, to not allow ourselves to be irritable or resentful, to not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth, to stick with this, to bear, to bear, to believe, to hope, to endure all things. This is the call for us. But I want you to notice where the power for that comes from. It comes from God. Let him love you so that you can love others. Let him love you so that you can show the world just how loving he is. Why don't we pray? Father God, we want to thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the clarity that Paul gives us here, showing us what love is like and where it comes from. Lord, we thank you most of all that you sent Jesus, that in love, Jesus came to bring us home to you. God, you are the God who is love. May you so work within our hearts that we become loving people and receive your love and show it to the world around us so that they might see how good you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. 
We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.